All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckleberry fins? What the fuck nicks? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my show. Welcome to my show. Today on the show, the amazing Mick Foley. You might know him as Mankind. You might know him as Cactus Jack. You might know him as Dude Love. You might know him as the hardcore legend, Mrs. Foley's baby boy, Mick Foley, professional wrestler, Mick Foley. But now you might know him as Santa. That's right. Mick Foley is now known as Santa. We'll talk about that and other things. The amazing Mick Foley, good-hearted dude. A lot of life. Written books, been places, done things. Got a big heart and a, and a busted-up body from that pro wrestling business. And as many of you know, I'm not a, a wrestling fan per se. I did not grow up enjoying the wrestling. I remember seeing the magazines. I've mentioned those magazines before, the pro wrestling magazines, just blood-spattered chubby dudes with bleach blonde hair and unitards, different uh, positions of pain. I remember those magazines, but I did not watch the wrestling very much. I did not lock in, though I do have a, a relationship with some wrestlers who I enjoy as people, Mick Foley being one of them, Colt Cabana, who uh, does a wonderful podcast uh, with wrestlers, and CM Punk, who uh, recently left uh, WW, the Worldwide, Worldwide Wrestling Foundation, Federation, whatever it is, to much, uh, to much fanfare and aggravation. CM Punk left and is now heading towards the UFC. CM Punk just was uh, acting in an episode of Marin last week. We did some work in the ring. So even though I may not be a fan of professional wrestling, I have been in the ring with the wrestler. And I have amplified my personality to the role of Mark Marin. Is that a wrestling role? Is it? Is are any couldn't any of our roles in life be wrestling roles? Who's the face? Who's the heel in your life? Look around. What game? What script are you running? Pow, look out. Just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop available at uh, WTFpod.com. So I've been doing some comedy, get my brain, you know, like I'm working out, like working out the comedy store, keeping in shape, keeping that connection open because I am going to have to tour fairly quickly uh, after I end shooting. Might be a surprise for those first few dates. Look, I, I think everything's pretty good. Uh, the shooting is going well. Um, I went running yesterday. Uh, I think the world is not great, but uh, it's holding up. It's raining a bit here in LA, which is always nice. Maybe that drought will go away. I've decided that a lot of what contributes to the drought outside of uh, fracking and, and commercial farming and Beverly Hills mansions with large yards that they overwater. Uh, I think one of the primary causes that we don't talk about much in public for the uh, Southern California drought is people masturbating in the shower. I mean, that can add anywhere from an extra... You know, three to 19 minutes, depending on your commitment. And that goes either way. You know, this is not just a dude thing. You know, I, I, believe me, ladies, I know about the glory of the shower massager. I'm no stranger to what you gals can do with the shower massager or perhaps the spigot itself. That's right. I'm talking to you, ma'am. That's right. You spigot fuckers. 
I've I've known a couple of you. It's okay. I I'm not judging. I'm not judging. But listen, it's, I feel like I'm being a little callous. Let's open up the heart. Let's open up the heart. Uh, the dating, the uh, girlfriend painter thing is going well. I am. Whatever shortcomings there are in my emotional capacity, given that I'm a cynical, angry fuck who's been through some things, uh, I am not engaging in it. I've chosen detachment over rage because the rage is garbage. It has nothing, it has no, no place being dumped on other people. I was even on stage the other night and a group of 12 walked in. This was uh, Saturday night at the Comedy Store and I, and I was sitting there with Sarah, watching 12 people walk into a pack house and said, "That's the, they're their own audience and they're going to be trouble. You get that many people together, you get them having a good time, that's how people die sometimes. And it's at least how comics have a bad night. And I got on stage, third up, person before me, Steve Trevino, addressed the fact that they were yammering, gabbing away. And I got up there and I felt it. I felt the, I felt the, the tug of their rudeness and a lot of times that's just like bait for my angry heart to just dump a lifetime's worth of infantile garbage onto an unsuspecting stranger who is asking for it in my demented brain in that moment because they are interrupting my dumb jokes and I'd much rather try to annihilate a stranger mentally and in public, in front of people they don't know, than do my jokes. My heart would rather do that. I personally would rather do the jokes and have a nice experience. So in that moment, I said to that person, I said, there's nothing more I'd, I'd rather do than to humiliate you and to start a lot of shit, probably use words that would make people uncomfortable and maybe even turn the audience against me. There was a time I said to this woman, and this gentleman and whoever the fuck was talking, there was a time where I would do that. I would take up my entire set to do that. I would ruin the next two comics acts to do that. But not tonight. Not tonight. I'm just going to tell you that uh, it's, it's rude what you're doing. I don't like you as people because you don't know how to behave in an audience situation. And you're being selfish. And uh, I'd like you to be quiet. Uh, so I can get through my set and I'd like you to be quiet for the rest of the show because it's just, um, it's horrible behavior and you're bad people. Calmly said that and felt good about it. I felt that that was a diplomatic way to handle it as opposed to like, what the fuck is your problem? Were you not parented properly, you dumb fucks? As opposed to that, I just told them I, I didn't like them and they were rude adults and didn't know how to behave themselves was not satisfying as the other way, but that's what I did. Proud of myself. So the anger is being stifled, but I don't know. It's got to be coming out somewhere. I think it's manifesting itself in man boobs from the amount of food I'm eating, but maybe I'm the only one seeing those. I can't even believe I just said man boobs. I don't have man boobs. Oh, God, fuck. And yeah, but uh, you know, dating somebody who has their own art, I mean, this, this woman has a painting hanging in Lakma. Her name is Sarah Kane. I will give you her name now. I will try to do that. Because I feel like I've been like hiding parts of my life and I've been running low on things that I could talk about. She's, she's a lovely woman. She, uh, she manages a small cat farm at her house. Uh, she enjoys tea. She doesn't eat the meat. And she's a, a brilliant abstract painter. And I am intimidated by her grand paintings. 
I look at the work she does and I was brought up to respect artists, especially painters, man. Painters. That is some fuck. This chick has balls, man. She's got an axe, you know, an axe in that brush. And uh, it's all very, it's intimidating. Like her paintings make me feel small. It's like, well, I said this thing last night. Really, I spent four hours a day on this line. I made two moves. I added that black and I put that gold in. And I'm standing there going like, holy fuck. That's amazing. And that's going to last forever. I uh, I, I diplomatically um, diminished some hecklers last night. I was very proud of myself in that moment. Yeah, I'm starting a new canvas tomorrow. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to talk... I'm going to creatively complain for laughs a little bit tomorrow. Not complaining. Everything's copacetic. Doing good. Doing good. Can you hear the edge? You can hear it, right? So listen. Listen up. Marination tours. Shows have been added in Seattle. Show will be added by Wednesday uh, this week in Toronto. Show has been added in uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. Vancouver, Spread the word, would you? Need a little, uh, need to push that baby up there. I know it's months away, but let's try to sell these tickets. Uh, San Francisco, Rochester, New York at the Comedy Club, Friday, March 20th, and Saturday, March 21st. The Warner Theater, theater. the Warner Theater in D.C., uh, April 9th, April 10th, the Trocadero, two shows in Philly. April 11th, the Wilbur Theater in Boston, two shows. April 16th, the Barrymore Theater, Madison, Wisconsin. Get your tickets. They're running. They're, it's happening. April 17th, Carnegie of Homestead Musical in Pittsburgh. Beautiful posters for these. April 18th, Royal Oak Music Theater in Royal Oak, Michigan. Get the tickets. April 19th, Bluma Appel in Toronto, uh, adding a second show. April 23rd, the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. Uh, let's do that. That's at the Moon Tower Festival. I'd love to see you. April 25th, Fitzgerald in Houston. Few tickets left. Fitzgerald's. April 26th, Southside Music Hall in Dallas. Uh, get some tickets for that, Dallas. You know, I don't know how, how I do in Texas and uh, outside of Austin. Uh, May 8th, the Neptune, Seattle, Washington. And May 8th, the Neptune Late Show. Two shows. May 9th, the Vogue in Vancouver. Do you not get my podcast in Vancouver? Let's go, Vancouver. What, do you wait until the last week? It's looking good. I've sold a few hundred, but that's a big place, man. May 10th, Davis Symphony Hall in San Francisco. Again, I've sold like a 1,000, but I need a 1,000 more. Come on. Come on. May 14th, the Orange Peel in Asheville, North Carolina. And May 15th, at the Charleston Music Hall in Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. May 16th, Variety Playhouse, Atlanta. Come on, Atlanta. Enjoy theater on May 17th in New Orleans. Do you not get my show in New Orleans? A few hundred sold. Let's keep it going. You can wait if you want. Uh, oh, here's what I want to tell you. So I'm probably going to be shaving my face entirely for the last uh, show. I got to shoot some stuff that requires that. So it might be a little jarring in Rochester to see a shaven face. You're going to see my face. Some of you will see my face. I will see my face. Let's see how it's doing under there. No affectation. No caffeine, no nicotine, no alcohol, no drugs. Cut down the sugar and I'm going to remove my facial hair. I will be naked. Naked! Man boobs. Don't want them. So look, folks, I'm going to bring to you now the Mick Foley conversation. The lovely 
McFoley, mankind. And uh, we aired part of this conversation back in November on episode 552 when Mick's documentary, I Am Santa Claus, came out. You can watch that on Netflix. Right now, Mick is on tour with the one-man show that you'll hear us talk about. Go to realmickfoley.com to check out his tour schedule and get tickets. Mick Foley, hero. Let's talk to him. Do you remember your childhood uh, not fondly otherwise? There were some rough batches. <laughs> well, life was not always easy on a heavy set kid. Who Where'd you was grow shy. up? Uh, Long Island. Yeah. That's right. I remember. It's all coming back to me because we had done some stuff on Air America. Yeah, you came yeah. down when you were uh, you were you were working for that uh, foundation, right? And we were talking about books, and there was the the wi- abused women. Yeah, Rain. Uh, yeah, Rain. Rain. Yeah. I was doing a lot of work for Rain at the time. I still, I, I mean, I was an active volunteer for for two years for. Yeah. Uh, Rain, nice acronym, tough words, rape, abuse, incest, national network. So I, uh, I was, uh, you know, like an advocate and yeah. I was a donor. And then I, uh, I took the, I took the, you know, the, the 40 hour online course. And then, uh, I did like the 20 hour in person, uh, training and, uh, for what exactly this is, uh, I would to be, be a like, spokesperson. No, no. I would be, uh, when people needed help. Oh, really? Would reach out. I mean, if someone is listening and, and they they need help or know someone needs help, I mean, the website is really simple. It's rain, R-A-I-N-N.org. And you so, still do that? No, I did it for two years, and uh, it was it was tough, man. But it if was, someone called you with those kind of issues, you could- it, Well, they would do it online, and then I would be an, an anonymous, you know, I had a oh, different wow. name. They wouldn't say, hey, Mick Foley. It yeah. Would, I would have a different name, and- uh I was, you know, I was, I was good at it. Like, what what compelled it. you to do something like that? Being like, uh, you know, it's uh, obviously you've got a big heart, but I mean, you know, the characters you've played, uh, you know, in the ring and 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 sort of what re- wrestling represents, which is it doesn't represent anything but wrestling. But you know, it's sort of like you wouldn't think that you would end up. You, yeah. you know, as a, as a as an online helper for rape and incest and uh, abusive uh, relationships. My uh, the key was uh, I met Tori Amos uh, at uh, Comic Con uh-huh. 2008, and she did it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was a, a huge fan, and uh, and uh, I I don't know. I, listen, I, I described it in my book. I uh-huh. said I, I, when I finally <laughs> met her, yeah, and she stood up from her table. Yeah, and my first words were not; they were in a question. They were. I can hug you? And then she gave me the biggest <laughs> hug. And I don't know if she transferred some energy like John Coffey did in the Green Mile, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I felt like a, a changed man. And uh, I'd never been on the internet in my life. The man who was mankind <laughs> hugs Tori Amos and everything changes. Everything changed. Everything changed. With one Tori Amos hug. Oh, the power of the Tori Amos hug, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Just It just placated. Uh, it rested the beast. Uh, it, it seemed to do something. And when I wandered over, like, I'd had my kids put me on a website. I could say, I want to see something. Can you get me on there? Yeah. But I'd never actually, like, ventured on there myself. And then I, I found a way to go on ToriAmos.com. Honestly, I wanted to see if she had put a photo of the two of us. On, Hugging? Uh, no, or otherwise. You know, we yeah. did the posed photos, too. Mm-hmm. And it turned out somebody actually did snap a photo. I mean, I remember, if you don't mind me going off on this Tori Amos tangent. I think it's a wonderful thing to know about you, Mick. <laughs> I looked at her after the hug and I said, you know who I am? I'll never forget it as long as I live. Like, she moved her hands like in majestic arcs, almost like she was Mr. Miyagi saying yeah. wax on, wax off. Yeah. Except with far more uh, pageantry and elegance. And she said, 
I know exactly who you are. <laughs> oh, and my it, God. It turned out that her nephew was like a, a big fan, and he had told her about this wrestler who would mention her in my, and, you know, I'd written a few books. Yeah. And, uh, and Tori would make occasional, um, you know, I'd make occasional Tori Amos references. Uh -huh. So. It was cool. I don't know. You know, I mean, she just did you did. feel it was deeper than that though? When she said, "I know exactly who you are," did you feel like, "Oh my God, my soul is exposed"? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. So that she could read me. And I was, you know what? I'm. And this I'm going to breaking news for you yeah. here. Uh, uh, this is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I. Should, I don't know if she wants me to tell the story. Uh, I got news from a uh, third person. Uh, mentioned my name, and this was somebody who who was uh, close to Tori and uh, was a mutual friend. Yeah. And after she met with her, she said Tori called her back in the room and said, "Tell Mick he's done enough." <laughs> like she really? she wanted me to stop giving. She thought I was giving too much money. She knew I was doing benefits. And oh, like for, for rain? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's yeah. like, "He's done enough." Oh he wow. Needs to take care of himself and his family. And it oh, was like wow. it was like. Okay, it's almost like you know a fighter has someone throw in the towel. For yeah, them. yeah, yeah. So I didn't quit. Somebody, yeah, somebody let me down. You know, the ref with, called uh, it. Yeah, yeah, she called it. Yeah. And, uh, oh wow! Did uh, you stop uh, for a while? Right now, I'm raising money for uh, a Santa whose house burned down. Uh, Save and, the uh, Santa campaign. I'm calling it Sockos for Santa. I'm selling uh, <laughs> autographed socks because that was the one mankind. Of the, yeah, yeah. There yeah, you go. The, yeah, you know your, your mankind. Stuff, Mark. Sock puppet. I don't know much. All right, but I knew you know that. That was like I part knew, of the. Uh, I knew that was part of the gift. The the, the uh, mankind uh, get up. It was, and so when I go out there before a show and I say, "Hey, uh, you know, I've, I've got these things for sale," and there's a, a you know one of Santa's ambassadors. You know, he's on tough times. House burned down. Lost everything. Every photo. Everything. And we're gonna try to make a little difference. So every night I'll like I'll do go to the GoFundMe. Yeah. So I'm not tempted to keep it. And yeah. Every yeah. Night yeah. I, uh, you know, I make the donation, but uh, I think that's—I think she'll understand. I got to—I got to do something. Well, it's in, well. So you've got this part of you that feels compelled to help out Santas and to help out uh, uh, women in trouble. And I—I I mean, so what? You grew up in Long Island. What? What town? This was uh, like Stony Brook by the university. There. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So, like, how many kids in the family? Just me and my brother. And where would he end up? He's. Uh, um, he works for UPS. You know, yeah. You know, like on uh, not on the driving side. He doesn't side? wear the the shorts. No, <laughs> he's in one of the guys. Was, long, did he, was he ever a shorts guy? Yeah, to be in UPS, you have to be a shorts you guy <laughs> for a while. You have to. <laughs> That's your you have to know how to walk the walk. Yeah, in the shorts. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> in, in the walk. long shorts. Uh huh. Yeah. And now he's on the other side. He's on the other. He's side. He's behind the desk. Yeah. You don't need to wear shorts behind the Barking desk. Barking out orders. Yeah. You don't have to wear any <laughs> pants behind the desk. And your folks and like what was uh what was the the home what's your old man do? My dad was a it was like uh my dad uh passed away a few years ago but he was uh really highly thought of he's the athletic director at our high school and uh, uh for five elementary schools two really? junior high and a 2500 student uh, high school so my dad was so highly thought of that uh when uh uh he passed away they lowered the flags at all uh uh, at every one of the district schools, all eight schools. Uh, and when we drove by out of the funeral home, I mean, I swear, it was very touching. It was right across the street from the high school. They had the flag at half-mast, and they had a member of every one of the fall teams, like, outside. It was, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it wow. now. So, you know, my dad, uh, I said in my first book, like, you know, I was known as a guy who who worked really, really, you know, really hard, gave people their money's worth, and especially, you know, when that camera light was on, 
you know, I was going to dig down a little deeper, and I said, my dad, he he worked every day, like the camera light was on. So yeah, he he, he touched a lot of lives, and I think that's, uh, you know, something he passed on to me. Yeah, it seems like it. So he seemed like a great guy. Yeah. Did he push you athletically? Uh, he did. Yeah, and we were we 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 had a tough patch there. I mean, it, it seems crazy now, and especially as I've I've had long hair, give or take a couple of shaved heads since 1985 you gotta like, shave your head occasionally mix I, it up well when i got out of wrestling in 2000 yeah. i celebrated my birthday at hershey park i did a q a and they traded it out for like three days at the park right and free you know free they lost out free food and lodging and then i went back after the q and i shaved off all my hair been long for 15 years <laughs> yeah. and the next day like i went uh, i went down first of all i went down to the uh <laughs> the hotel and they said how are you doing mr foley i was like how do you, how do you know I am? Like, and it turns out like I've got a prominent injury. Well, I lost one of my ears along the way, and without the hair, it made me very detectable, very easily. And You're then, missing an ear. I, I am, yeah. So, so you know, the young lady lost her, uh, um, uh, young lady lost her, lost her ear, a part of it at a UFC fight. Uh, did you know? Did you know that? It, no. it was hideous, and I started getting these messages. Uh, so I just reached reach out to her and said, her the, it welcome gets, to the club. It gets better. <laughs> <laughs> it gets better. Uh, and, uh, and like the next, the next day, like she reached out to me and thanked me uh, for being there. And it was like one of these feel good worlds collide. Did you email Tori Amos and tell her about that? I didn't, I didn't include Tori. I didn't know if Tori needed <laughs> to be part in. of this. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm helping the earless now. <laughs> Anybody with one ear, I'm raising some money. We're get together of our support group. It's yeah, me yeah. and Holly Field. You're trying to get uh, some new ears for some people. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the, the shaving the head didn't hide you, man. Didn't hide me. And then the, like two days later, Mr. McMahon, the owner of WWE, called me up and he was like, hey, Is that what you um, call him? I called him Vince until about three years ago when I kind of lost my touch, you know, you know, I, I left and I worked for the, not that there is any competition to WWE, but I definitely worked for someone else other than them. And, yeah. and then I never quite found my mojo around it when I got back. And you no know? more events. Uh, and now he's Mr. McMahon. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Very strange. Did that just happen organically? Uh, it did. Yeah. It seemed to. I felt like I was kind of like the boy who, be who cried wolf and betrayed him simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. Right, do you do you feel guilty about that? Um. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I, I told his... His daughter Stephanie, uh, who I've known, she was you know nineteen, twenty years old. I said, I think I had to leave in order to better appreciate just how well everything is done here. Like, oh, really? It's, oh, it's a you know, yeah, it's it's. Were you like part of the family? I imagine. I was like part of the family. How long yeah. did you were you with them? I was with them off and on for uh, you know I started there in ninety uh, six. And, uh, you know, off and on, I, I felt like I was Dorothy who had given the ability, even after I retired from full-time wrestling in 2000, like I had the ability to like tiptoe back and forth from t Kansas to Oz, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I could lead this normal life. Uh, and then anytime I, I literally, anytime I wanted, I could call up the company and say, hey, can I appear? I did that when I, I do the one-man show, you know? And so I was traveling around the... Uh, the UK and Ireland, because you have to make that distinction. Don't ever oh, do say, I know, yeah, I know. don't ever include Ireland I on your UK tour. Did that once. The end of, oh yeah, that's the last time you ever make that mistake, right? Yeah. So you got to say Not a UK good and Ireland, yeah. right? 
Um, and I was in Dublin. I got there a day early, and WWE happened to be there. So I, I called up. I was like, hey, I hadn't been in, on a show in three years. I was like, can I, can I show up? And they were like, sure. So I was like, hey, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, surprise. And as much as I love, and I really do, I really do get almost everything I used to get yeah. you know, from doing the shows in front of a couple hundred people as opposed to, you know, Ten or fifteen thousand people. Yeah, but it's kind of cool to know that if you want that fifteen thousand reaction without having any pressure to perform, <laughs> just to any walk pressure out? To, to bring the crowd in. It's yeah. almost like the difference between you know cooking a dinner and cleaning it up yeah. when you're done, and, yeah. and just walking out and enjoying the meal. So, well, I, I mean, know. it's a, it's a little bigger than that because, like, you know, if you're in a pinch, if you're feeling a little low, and there's a, a WWE fight around, you can be like, I'm just gonna go wave, get some juice. And that was his. That was how simple <laughs> it was. And, and Vince even said, he goes, you know, Mick, after all you've done, I want you to consider WWE to be your playground, and. You can come back and play anytime you want. I did that for for many years. Yeah. In and out. In and out. You get a few bucks. Uh yeah. They would. They would take it. That was not the. You know. I didn't. Yeah. I mean. They. They would. Yeah. They always. They always took care of me. But you're physically incapable of wrestling. I cannot this. wrestle anymore. Yeah. That was. Uh, <laughs> that was a decision. A wife neurolo- made that. No, huh? a neurologist arrived at that conclusion. Wait, uh, with with what did he say? Uh he said. Basically, he said, uh, "You're done." And uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, what, what was it? What was the what was the tipper? What, it, we... what it was, uh, honestly, uh, WWE. This uh, credit to them is uh, they started giving these impact tests to measure uh, um, the repercussions of, of brain injuries. And even as I was doing the test, like I realized it wasn't going well, especially as far as the short term memory went. And uh, so, independent of WWE. I I I called a, a top neurologist I knew at the Boston Center for Traumatic Encephalopathy, and as long as I could say those words, I know I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, and made an appointment, and then that day later, one day later, WWE called me and they said there's been an issue with your impact test, and so independently of each other, both of these neurologists came to the conclusion that I was done because of uh, your brain. Yeah, just too many. Uh, too many injuries and one of the things we learn as we go which i didn't know is uh, at the time you know because everyone thinks they're you know they're they're unstoppable mm-hmm. you know, when they're their peak but that as you get older and i would on one level i i realized i was getting hurt quicker yeah. it didn't take as much to hurt me and it lasted longer but then there was also that sense that i don't feel that bad and i still and i realized that you know i was pretty lucky to have a good job and a tough economy it didn't call for me to do that much it was like i can i can take a few more of these and so it really did i mean it, it every wrestler's convinced they've got another match left in them uh and so i was glad i was lucky you know fortunate as it turns out to have a neurologist you know again almost like tori amos with the yeah with the funding yeah. just thrown in the towel and you, saying you've, you've done enough you've you, done you, too much you got a doctor's note addressed directly <laughs> to your bad side exactly but but like how did you hobble yourself what how, what's with the oh yeah you could notice that as i was walking right well, um, i mean i think last time <laughs> Like the last time we talked was two thousand and four, so it's been ten years. Yeah, yeah. So you were out of the racket four years, and I was moving around okay, you know. Yeah, and I uh, dropped some weight, um, and um, I just it was kind of mother nature. 
Yeah. And Father Time teaming up to kick my ass a little bit, Mark, <laughs> telling me I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. But you were like all in guy. I mean, like oh, I guess the reason yeah. why you were such a you know a phenomenal uh, performer in that is that you would take risks, right? I did. You know, they. I didn't consider them risks. Like I consider myself to be high impact as far as high risk. Like I knew when I was doing things, there's going to be a price to pay. High I, impact means you could take a beating. I could take a beating. I could like even as you know. Uh, I mean, everyone had their idea of what wrestling was, and and on my uh, one man show, I elaborate on this a little bit. But I actually had like a formula in my head. Like I I, I thought if I do things that hurt me enough, people will think they hurt me a little. Right, because I was uh, I was a fan who liked to figure out how moves were done and how the aura of danger was created without putting the the the, the, the wrestler's body too much risk. Yeah, but the things I was really fascinated by were the moves I couldn't figure out. Like I'd watch them over and over. I don't know how they do who that. Who did those? Oh, there was a lot of that you'd see in uh, in Japan and uh, Jimmy Superfly Snuka with the uh, Superfly Splash, Terry Funk with an N. We're yeah. not dealing with the FCC here, but yeah. just to be clear, uh, Terry Funk with an N. Um, and I would try to figure out how these guys. Uh, so it's like did magic. Well, it wasn't magic. It would be like when you watch. Uh, the, what's the one with? The, there were two great magic movies out of the, the Prestige. Yeah. Right, and then you find out the way they do the dove. You know, yeah. the dove is actually killed. Right. <laughs> they bring, like, That's it. That you got to beat like, the shit out of yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a magic trick at all. He was actually getting hurt. And when I was nineteen, and I thought that seemed like a pretty good idea. Like I'll, everything I do will will cause people to look at each other and go, "Oh, that had to hurt." It yeah. looks like after thirty years, like yeah. the secret is, you were right. It did. You were right. <laughs> it yeah. did hurt. Yeah, it did hurt. So wait, let's get back to your dad and uh, what seemed to be a long hair problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 1981, when your dad's the athletic director, it seems ridiculous now because hairstyles have changed so much. I used to get knocked like in in the late 70s. I remember, I remember a girl coming up to me and singing, Square, ain't got no hair, because I was the only guy in the school. I'm talking about in the school with a crew cut. He made you have a crew cut? He didn't make me. Understood? I, I liked it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I liked it, and I guess in that sense, I liked being being different. Yeah. Probably if everyone had their hair long, I, I would not. I'd find right. a different way. And even with, with the short hair, you know, being out, like a mohawk in 1982 was like, like almost unheard of. So when I showed up with a, a mohawk because I was on the school wrestling team with Kevin James. Oh, he's uh, funny, High school man. teammate, yeah. Was he yeah. funny then? He was funny, but he was mostly, like, tough. Yeah. You know, like, people forget. Now that he's done the UFC movie, you know, people are, okay, you know, you can see. Well, he looks like a wrestler. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of two guys in school who could bench 300 pounds, and in case you're wondering, I was not the other one. He's that guy. Yeah, yeah he that was makes that sense. guy. That and, makes uh, sense. To this day, I felt, uh, I feel like going out for that team, knowing that he was already, like, penciling in as a heavyweight, was like the boldest, gutsiest move that I had ever made. And and if somebody had stopped me like on my way down to the wrestling room and said, you know Kevin James is down there. If I'd <laughs> yeah. thought about it, I probably would have said, I'm out of here. Really? Uh, he was yeah. a badass, huh? Yeah, I mean, he was the guy you, you didn't guys, mess with. You stay in touch? We did for many years. Yeah. For many years. And then the last time I saw him, I was a surprise guest on Katie Couric's show. Uh-huh. And, uh, like, and, this is your life uh, This is thing? your life. It was, you know, Grown Ups 2, and so the theme was they were surprising people, surprising the cast with guests from their past. So it was Adam Sandler's basketball coach. Oh, right, and, right, right. And then I came in as the guest from Kevin's past. So we got to catch up for 10 minutes 
while we sat there because I was like, you know, the you know the was surprise guest. I didn't see him before. Was he happy to see you? He acted like it. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. You know, I, I know one time when they uh, surprised him with uh, uh, with a Mick Foley contribution. Uh, I think he was promoting the Zookeeper. Yeah, like, we have a guest from your past via video, and he was like, "Oh, Mick Foley!" Like he knew it was coming. <laughs> he knew it was coming, but uh, he, he certainly, yeah, he he was a good dude, man. We used to, we used to hang out not only in high school. Uh, he transferred to my college, and we did some uh, road trips and listened some Springsteen. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, back in 1986. Yeah, you and him just in yeah. the car, born to run. Uh, no, they born run. in the USA by this time. Oh really? Yeah. Then you didn't go back. It was just the new well, stuff. Well, of course you'd go back. Yeah, yeah. I guess you would. You yeah, know, yeah, I just heard Candy's Room uh, yesterday. It's they good, were, right? Yeah, they were playing uh, the the entire uh, darkness. Darkness. And you know what? Now that we're on Springsteen, yeah. I'm not saying it wasn't a great album. It's a great but album. How did it get so big among like high schoolers? Because it's pretty depressing. Well, that record, I think, uh, is that after Born to Run or it was before? It's just to run. so I think he grabbed everybody with the spirit of Born to Run, and then I think he spent like two or three years he on did, Darkness. Yeah. I mean, it was like that was the epic. Uh, I mean, the journey got a little darker for him after Born to Run. Born to Run's like almost romantic. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah, like passionate. There's a sort of a you know you know go get it kind of a embrace the American dream with all your creative spirit. And then it got a little dark. It got a little dark. Stayed a little dark for a while. And uh, yeah, when he ends with darkness on the edge, edge of town, it's almost like you, you're left feeling like, oh, there's no hope whatsoever. You I know, know, but Bruce is so elevated about it. He's very <laughs> passionate. You know, there's something about there's always hope in his voice. Do you ever met him? I did. Yeah, I did meet Bruce uh, a couple times. Uh, actually, if you go through like uh, the last. <laughs> Ten years of photos. Yeah, there is a very good chance I'll be wearing a vest that says Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, Stockholm, Sweden, like 1993, and it was given to me by uh, one of Bruce's best friends, uh, Terry McGovern. Yeah, and I wore the vest for two very good reasons. One, I was a big Bruce fan. I love the fact that Terry had given to me his gift, and the second <laughs> second reason was <laughs> when the fanny pack went out, mm-hmm. like. In 2000, before I brought it roaring back to life six yeah. months ago, when I realized I was committed. Is that why everyone's wearing them? I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. It's all you, Mick. I realized, I looked at it, this is the truth. I looked at a segment WWE had on their network, and I realized like, I committed so many fashion errors in a 10-minute segment. And I just looked at my kids, and I was like, why don't I just start wearing the fanny pack? But up <laughs> yeah. until then, the, the Terry McGovern Springsteen vest, it had zippers on the pockets. Yeah. And I was like a kangaroo. Like yeah. without it was it was my pack. It so was, it was for practical uh, reasons. Practical reasons and also emotionally. I felt very tied to it. Well, what, did, what did Bruce say to you when you met Bruce? Bruce always very soft, you know, yeah. very soft spoken. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Y- you know, he was always doing, very, man? very cordial. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I, I would be a great stretch for me to say that he was, you a know, pal. a pal. Yeah, just sort of in <laughs> passing. Since all right, so but uh, I will say that Nils Lofgren came to my show in Phoenix. And oh yeah, he, and he played. Does he me live like, there? He does. Yeah, I got that box set. I got to dig into that. Nils man. is awesome, and he actually, uh, uh, I was surprised. One day, uh, WWE announcer Michael Cole sent me uh, over an email and had Nils doing like an impromptu song when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know. And and I, I'd always to this day, I, I swear that like the live version of Youngstown in Madison Square Garden is the coolest guitar solo 
I've ever heard. You yeah. Know? Oh, it was like I re- I was there at the time. Now I can't tell you. First, he did ten nights at the Garden. Yeah. So I'm not sure which night it was, right. but I just remember like my friend Scott Dara, friend, friends in seventh grade. He goes, Nils is going off. Like we were aware that yeah, something was happening. Like historic. And then when the <laughs> yeah. when the DVD came out and uh, and the CD, I was just mes- like mesmerized by it. Just just thought it was powerful. Really, really loved it. So, like with with your father. You know, going back, you know, you you guys were tense for how long? Uh, maybe just those couple of high school years, you know. Yeah. And then as time went by, you know, we became very close, and he was very close with my uh, my children. Did he appreciate the wrestling? Yeah, he did. He did. You would think he would not, but he did. Uh, did you have we, to explain it to no, him? No, and here's the thing. Even though my dad was like the real, the real sports guy, yeah. and I grew up, you know, with my, my childhood, this is a weird thing. Like, I fondly remember, like, the scent of bo yeah you know like that was like a good thing like the even locker if we room went kind to, of deal yeah went to even if we went to a cross country meet yeah you know and that wasn't my favorite that was a you know basketball baseball football you wrestling. did everything that you had to do everything i had to go to every event oh uh, women's field everything you know but like that was like a why because you were with him uh, that was how we spent time my dad worked a lot so oh, that so, was like right, how well, we where are you going we're taking a road trip yeah we would go everywhere watch some field and hockey and uh during the basketball games like the coolest thing was he'd give us the key to the weight room yeah and at that time like <laughs> lifting weights for fun seemed cool like, yeah it sure, never man. did after you know <laughs> once, well, you, nah, had to, nah. once you had to maintain your physique yeah right right i i always just did it because i had to not because i enjoyed it at all but it was really wrestling that brought us back together. And I know this sounds funny with like a non-fan, but there's something like multi-generational about it. I mean, I can't, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you like thousands of people have said, I used to watch it. They always include the grandfather, the father, the uncle. And, and in so many cases, there are people, you know, relatives who are having a tough time everywhere else. And this was specific to Mike, you know, this, I mean, specific, I'm talking about my case specifically, but in general, yeah, it's safe to say that, uh, it's, it was it's, for a lot of people. It's the one thing they feel more comfortable watching with company than alone. Because like, it's a good time. Like, yeah, let's watch. Let's watch some wrestling. And my dad could appreciate the. I think they know that it's a controlled environment. That's almost what it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like these guys are putting on a show right. for our enjoyment. Yeah, and it all seems kind of safe that way. Yeah. So okay, so he was uh, on board the whole way. He was very supportive of me when I started out, even when the money wasn't exactly piling up. And yeah, you know, I came home from Nigeria in 1987 after I'd literally been bludgeoned by uh, <laughs> oh, by fans. Turns out that not everyone in the world knows it's <laughs> entertainment, and if you uh, cheat. In Nigeria, against the Nigerian champion, Power Udi, some people will take it the wrong way. and uh, yeah, Even I though mean, it was a script. Well, they, yeah, but yeah, in this case, you know, one of the few times that I wrestled in front of more than the, you know a, a few hundred people, there were about 30,000 people in this stadium in 1987, yeah, and I hit Power Udi with uh, you know, some type of fart. It was actually a large like cow's bone, you know, uh-huh. like a thigh bone. And next thing I know, I'm just being pummeled by fans. Jesus and, uh, Christ. The wrestlers dragged me out of there, and uh, I was stitched up uh, on in a chemist's office with a dirt floor because they told me not to trust the hospital. Because they might have... Uh, well, I don't know what they... they what just, that no, means. No, 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 the chemist's office. So, uh, yeah, the wrestlers, I, mean, I feel like they, they saved my life over there. And when I got home, you know, with like $300 for the two weeks... After being, you know, having a a life-threatening oh experience, my dad was like, "Hey, 
not everyone can say they went to Nigeria. You know, like he was always like, say glass half full. Great experience, Meg. And I couldn't appreciate it at the time. So when but, you retired, though, were, were you set? I mean, was that a choice? Like you were like, I got enough bread to, to, to go? Well, I was pretty, I was, I say pretty thrifty. Yeah. Some people would say extremely thrifty, yeah. you know, on the road. Uh, and I had saved a lot of money, and I'd been there when thing, times were really good. Yeah. I didn't know that the you know the economy was going to tank a couple of times. Yeah. So it was almost like, and then I, I didn't know that the world was going to line up at my door to read my novels. Right. And uh, after the 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 second novel, uh, well, it was actually after the first. A lot of goodwill out there for a you. A lot of goodwill. Yeah. But it didn't mean that they were going to follow me on that journey. Just right. like you know. The the show I do is by and large it's like a wrestling centric storytelling show. I've been at it for five years. It's taking people a long time to figure out that it's a wrestling show. Like when I when I show up, does anyone have any idea what do, you know what I do? Most oh, so sometimes don't. you go to a cold room. No, no, they're they're really receptive, and I'll go out on a limb and say like I greatly outperform their limited expectations. Well, let's see. So you did four novels. Two novels. Two novels. Four memoirs. Yeah, four and that memoirs. sounds horrible. Yeah, there's like reason. So six I think, books. And then four four kids books, and how those go? Kids books were good. You know, yeah. the first two sold really well. Uh, the last two didn't, but they were like the better books. You know, yeah. and so there's a moral lesson. Especially with the novels, it was the same thing. You know, I'll tell you what happened. Um, Kevin Smith came to our premiere in L.A. for I Am Santa Claus, and we did his podcast after the show. And he explained that he and his wife don't go to the movies. They went out of their way to see this. And it was really gratifying to have a guy who knew movies telling me why it was good. Yeah. Me and the director. And I said, Kevin, you just made me critic proof. He goes, dude, you haven't seen my reviews. I said, not that, not that. I said, but from now on, it doesn't matter if I get a horrible review because my answer internally will be, Kevin Smith liked it. He yeah, knows yeah. more about novel, knows more about movies than you. Yeah. When it came to novels, it was Richard Price, who's you know did Clockers and yeah, and, yeah. Uh, just a, and most of the writing for The Wire, the first two seasons, like really like a a writer's writer. Yeah. And he read it beforehand. You know, he was one of my uh, the first novel. He read the second one. Yeah. And then I got a call back. Uh, well, I, actually, I I asked my um um. My editor, Victoria Wilson, who had edited for Nobel Prize winners, you know, if I, instead of her sending, like, you know, letters to writers that she knew, mm-hmm. if I could maybe send letters to writers whose work I like, thinking they might like mine, and I remember saying, darling, you know, you can do whatever you like, but don't expect anything from this. And at that time, everything was handwritten, so yeah. I wrote 12, you know, 12 letters. To who? Uh, Jonathan Kellerman and, and Stephen King and John Irving and, and Richard Price. Uh-huh. And then one day, you know, she and she read them and said, darling, these are very charming. Yeah. Don't get your hopes up. And yeah. then I'm at my home one night, I get a phone call. Before, the, you know, 2004 was like before texting and tweeting. Sure. And it was Richard Price. Yeah. And he was like, I'm really enjoying this novel and I'm going to give you a great blurb when I'm done. And maybe someday we can get together and trade stories. I said, okay, about what? He said, about growing up in the Bronx because my book was set in the Bronx in the 60s. I said, I didn't grow up in the Bronx. <laughs> and so here's Richard Reisman nominated for a National Book Award and yeah. an Academy Award. He goes, you must have really done your homework. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, come from you, Mr. Price. You know, that's a great honor. And uh, and uh, he ended up writing me a blurb that was actually better written than anything like I could ever write. <laughs> like It yeah. was so profound. And it clearly wasn't like, and not to pick on Larry King, but it wasn't just like, 
you know, right? Is there, did, he does it again. No yeah, one yeah. does it. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like Camille, yeah. yeah. Clearly, he had read the book and 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 had this great quote. And from that point on, whereas I took the criticism for the first novel to heart, you know, let it get to me. Like I was very realistic about the sales. And knew that I would take a beating from a, a, a few critics here or there, even though overall people, you know, critics are very kind to both my novels. But when those bad ones did come, it was like, Richard Price likes my books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows more about writing than you did do. Did Stephen King get back to you? Or the, uh, Stephen King did not, but I did get, uh, at that time, my publisher said, I think I know the answer to this question, but would you mind if we gave John Irving <laughs> your address? I was like, no, I don't mind if you give John Irving my address. And I swear, I felt like Charlie Bucket, you know, when he gets that golden ticket yeah, one yeah, day I get yeah. home and there's a Jay Irving, you know. He wrote you? He wrote wrote me. And so, and he was like, he was explaining why he couldn't get to the book. He said yeah. he read my first novel, enjoyed it, and then he kind of gave a very, uh, very uh, descriptive. He's a wrestling guy. He is a wrestling guy. And he wrote to me how he dislocated his finger graphically. And then he said, thought you might enjoy it given your. Uh, uh, given your background. So I wrote him back. I said, Dear Mr. Irving, thank you very much for taking the time to write to me. Don't worry about you know not uh, having the time. I said, one of my fears is that one day I'll be a real writer and people I don't know will be sending books to me asking if I'll review them. And like a week later, I get a book, Dear Mr. Foley, yeah. please don't concern yourself with whether or not you're a real writer. He said, those who would classify writers as either uh, literary or commercial can be counted on to be neither. And then he told a story about how uh, you know uh, uh, you know a critic saw him having lunch with Stephen King and uh -huh. later expressed surprise. And he said, you know, Stephen and I have more in common than you might think. Neither one of us would even you know would begin a project unless we were sure we could shock or offend somebody. And it began this nice like, and I swear I would look at that blank page and I would be so nervous because I knew without my editor. Putting in the semicolons, yeah, you know, and the yeah. hyphens in the right place. Like, I'm just this wrestling dude, you know, yeah. with a pen. But did you and go into wrestling? Right? Did you, you went to college? Though, I right? went to college, and that was, you know, yeah, I started uh, breaking into pro wrestling when I was 19, when I was a sophomore in college. And my where'd dad's, you go? Cortland, New York. Yeah, Cortland, New York. And I was actually born in Bloomington, Indiana. I see you've got the Bloomington shirt. There, yeah, I like and, Bloomington. And you've been there to the uh, sure. the comedy uh, yeah. attic, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a nice little room. Cool Jared's role. a good guy. Yeah, he is a good. Yeah, guy. he's a he's a believer. Oh yeah, yeah, believer in in comedy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I loved it, and yeah. it's uh, it's been really cool for me. Uh, How long were you lived there though for? Oh, just a little while. Right. You know, my dad was uh, studying for his uh, doctorate there. Oh yeah, that's yeah. where you got his degree. Yeah, it's a hell yeah. of a school that place. Yeah, kind of cool. So I grew up as a big IU fan. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, you know, was in tears when they were down by. But what'd you study? Points. I studied communications. So you really didn't have a background in English or anything? No, but looking back on it, like when I took English in uh, college, like I, I remember finding my you know papers years later. Yeah, I mean like you know fifteen years later, uh, and one of the professors had said you should really consider this for a career. And at the time, you know that sounded had good feel for it. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah but I, I, when I went back and look at stuff I wrote as like a six or seven year old, it was pretty good. Now, when you look back, like, you know, in talking about, uh, you know, your your charity work or your your causes, I mean, do you ever, when you look at the, the sort of um, damage that wrestling does to guys yeah. and that a lot of guys didn't fare as well as you, even though you're a little beat up, yeah. you know, mentally and emotionally, you seem to have a pretty good spirit. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of dudes that, that didn't fare as well. 
I mean, yeah. do you do you, you know how do you feel about about them? Have you ever had been put in a position to help some of your comrades out? Yeah, um, I you know what you know when people ask me what I'm proudest, you know, there's yeah. some things I'm proud of. I'm the only WWE champion that I know of that doesn't actually have a you know the physical championship belt mm-hmm. that he won. And when my kids, you know, younger kids and other big fans are like, "Dad, why don't you have the the belt?" Yeah. And it's like it's like I they kind of know, but I haven't like but I basically put it up for auction to help a wrestler pay his medical bills. So I, you know, like I look back, like I wish I had the belt, but I like what not having it represents. Yeah, you know, like, I, like, and besides, like I've got this thing that reminds me of my career. Like I don't need something on a wall. I've yeah. got this thing called waking up <laughs> that reminds me. Yeah, and yeah. so, like, when given the choice again, I don't know if I would give that up. I'd probably have it mounted in a special place. But I, like I said, I'm I'm kind of I'm proud of what not having it represents. How'd the guy do? He got out. Of, he got out of the hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, he's uh, you know, it's 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 a tough it's a tough way to make a living. It's a tough way. But yeah. you didn't get strung out or nothing. You, you were no, never a drug I was guy? no, I was never a drug guy at all. And as a matter of fact, like when I was uh, uh, in the uh, late '80s, early 1990s, when I was wrestling with Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling. You know, and I like the character I had was that of like a, you know, a psychologically deranged man. But among the guys, like the thing that made them like suspend disbelief was the idea that he doesn't smoke pot. Yeah. He must be crazy. <laughs> because at the time, I mean, let's face that's a harmless, fairly yeah. harmless thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I avoided it because I knew that I'd like it if I ever tried it. So yeah. I never even tried it. Never even tried it. Well, I think you got off on taking risks. <laughs> Maybe so. And I also realized at a young age, you know, at age 19, that this was going to be a style that had consequences and that uh, I was realistic enough to, to know that you don't, don't medicate, you know, unless you really, really need it. And there are some nights, you know, days when I really, really need something and then I'll take it. But like, uh, you know, I have to get my refill every six months because it's expired and I've only yeah. taken three pills in right. six months. So I, yeah, I was always, I was always pretty good that way. And when did you decide to start doing a live show? Oh man. Um, cause I know it's been going on a while. Yeah. Has it evolved? Yeah. It's really, it's, you know what? Montreal. You do, you do comedy clubs. Yeah, I do comedy clubs. So it's a, it's funny because people say, oh, so you do stand up and I kind of wince and it's it, there's nothing to do with the respect I have for comics because when other comics see yeah. me and go yeah well you tell stories of course it's part of stand up comedy yeah, right but you know I think when wrestling fans hear stand up they picture me in a bow tie telling one liners about yeah. the, the weather um, turning point for me you said last time we really talked was yeah. 2004 but right. I saw you a couple of years ago in Montreal right and when I went to Montreal I was with a, a comic doing a double bill with an Australian comic named Brendan Burns yeah I know, you know Brendan really, well that's right oh that yeah, remember yeah 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 he, he was like a, he's a big uh, P.T. Barnum he's a big spectacle guy oh yeah yeah so and, you, I didn't know what that show was but you did did you do that in Europe with him too yeah we did that um, well Brendan met Brendan we did a guest set yeah and, and I mean he's you know he's razor sharp yeah you know I mean one of the knocks on Brendan is he, he works he doesn't work you know why you know yeah. he's well you're either with him or you're not 
And uh, but what he loved about working with me is he got to do his wrestling stuff. Yeah, you know he was no longer doing social commentary. Right, about, right, you know, right. He was able to have fun and let loose. And uh, when we get ready to do Montreal, we'd be doing our press and guys. So you know, do you, is it a wrestling show? And I go, well, I use wrestling as a jumping off point to explore greater. And he go, mate, it's a wrestling show. And I go, well, no, Brendan, I <laughs> mate, it's a wrestling show. And it wasn't until I went to Montreal. And we did we we did good. We had good shows, Brendan and I. But I was walking around that hotel looking at one guy after another who was funnier than me. When yeah. I got like right. it was like the reality check. Wait a second, you are the wrestling guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. You're never gonna be as funny as these guys. You might be if you do put in twenty five years. Right. But I was like, But I've got stories. Yeah, like yeah. Louis C. K. doesn't have a story about ending a match with his front tooth in his nose. Yeah, you know, I do. <laughs> Play to your strengths. And it was like, as soon as I got that yeah. and became comfortable with it, like the shows became better almost immediately. You remind me of Rollins. Really? Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, because, you know, you have a natural ability, you're a raconteur, and you can directly <laughs> draw from amazing experiences and just keep talking. <laughs> well, I was at a club, and, I, you know, it reminds me so much of the wrestling business because you absorb everything you can. And you're very respectful. Like if one of the comics sees my show and has pointers, of course you're respectful. Someone's giving you pointers? Oh, a lot of people. You know, I've had, well, Brendan's really taken me under his wing. You know, he'd write these long emails, you know, explaining why I might get a better laugh if I put more emphasis on the last syllable. Was he right? Usually. Yeah. You know, usually. And then he, like, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him, like, the one thing that he really built up had already been taken out of the show. Uh-huh. And so I'd have to include it when Brendan toured with me. So I didn't, <laughs> I what I heard didn't his hurt his feelings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I then, I, I take what people tell me. Uh, Judah Friedlander was really helpful. Did he tell you to talk more about poop? <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is what Judah did for me. <laughs> I, I did I I'd, I'd kind of given up on 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 comedy or storytelling yeah. because uh, I was I was a bundle of nerves before I did it. Like it was like I was going out for a pay per view. I was in front of seventeen people. You in were Worcester. more scared. You know, when you're out of your comfort zone, especially when I was I was doing like the unbilled guest sets, you know, sure. showing up at the club and hey, can I do 10 It's minutes? hard, man, because yeah. a lot of comics are like, why is he fucking taking stage time up? Yeah, yeah. Why yeah. is the wrestler here? Yeah. I mean, I love him. I love mankind. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a comedy club. But they appreciated that I was there doing it for free. Yeah. To, you know, trying taking my out. time, yeah. trying it out. But I basically abandoned hope. I'd given up on it. Why, did then- you bomb? I'd bombed a few times, not severely, but I. How could I wanted, you tell? Because you were expecting it. laughs. I could, I could feel it, and I'd had some good shows. Yeah. So I knew what a good show. I thought I knew what a good show could feel like, but the pivotal moment for me was when I told the Wounded Warriors that, uh, hey, I, I was going to going on a uh, like doing a fundraiser with them at the Broadway Comedy Club in New York, and I told the guy I, I used to do some comedy, so if you want, you know. I'll do a set. And the Wounded Warriors veterans? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I sat in the front table, and they had a, you know, New York, you know, the showcase night, so there's not a bad comic in the line. Right. Everyone's doing, like, a really polished eight to ten minutes. Didn't know it at the time, but that's where I first saw Amy Schumer. Right. Like, when I met her in Montreal, she was like, dude, I saw you, you know. And I remember her specifically pointing me out and saying I used to cock block her on Mondays because yeah. her boyfriend would be watching the show. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Who, no, he, not at that time. Yeah, it was talking yeah, about late 1990s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Judah goes on, and of course Judah kills, and then they say, hey, we have a special guest. You know, you might know him from WWE, Mick Foley. 
And I proceeded to go up and just tank on a level I didn't think was possible. <laughs> and I just, at, at one point, I just looked out of the crowd and I said, if I was in a pool, I would ask for a life preserver because I'm drowning up here. And it was like the most painful experience of my life, like uh, worse than any wrestling match that tanked. Yeah. You're, you, were the, you, you were the heel with no uh, uh, control. Uh, it was, yeah. And you couldn't even like, didn't even have an outlet if you have a bad match and you have the physical pain. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, sub, you know, it kind yeah. of um, it lends a helping hand to the yeah. emotional hurt. Yeah. This is just like sheer open emotional heartbreak. Yeah. Sorry, pal. But Judah was there when I walked off and I swear, like when I walked up the stage, I swore to myself, I'm never going up there again. Like, I don't ever want to revisit this moment again. And he was there and he goes, dude, it wasn't as bad as you thought. Dude, it was awful. <laughs> he goes, dude, he goes, ordinarily, if someone goes four straight minutes without a single laugh, they're done. Yeah. He said, but people are actually listening to you. He goes, that's something other comics will never have. He goes, don't get me wrong, dude. You got to find a way to make this funny. <laughs> And then, you know, so he started taking me under his wing and he'd call me up. I'd go into the city and we'd yeah. do like the five clubs in a night, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, was and he a wrestling fan? He was a huge wrestling fan. Uh, yeah. I'm even on, like, I'm immortalized on 30 Rock because yeah. uh, Judah's wearing uh, the old school Mick Foley Cactus Jack shirt yeah. on uh, on the Christmas episode. Uh, and I had to sign like 12 forms, you know, just to give them access to it. But uh, yeah, he, he definitely saved me. And then. You know, I, things started picking up a yeah. little bit, good enough to get to Montreal, uh, good enough to, you know, do a little tour of Europe. And then there were guys like Brendan there. And it was, But really the key for me was realizing I've got a role. Like I'm pushing, like people are coming to the door and I'm slamming it shut on them, saying, no, I'm doing social commentary, you know. And, and, and then once I realized I'm the wrestling guy. Yeah. And also once I realized like from the other side that there is something to be said for just leaving people feeling good. Like, they can find other places to think deep thoughts. They don't need to do that at my show. Do you talk about, like, the creation of, like, Cactus Jack and of Mankind? I will. And about, yeah, yeah. What, do you do a Q&A? I do a Q&A, yeah, at the end of every show. We do we do about 20 minutes. And what do people usually want to know? Are they usually wrestling fans? Oh, yeah. Like, 95% of them are wrestling fans. But I get a lot of questions. One of the nice things is, is women will come up, and they'll, they'll specifically say, I had no idea what to expect. I'm not a wrestling fan. I really enjoyed your show. Yeah. And I said, that, you know, thank you for I just, you know what? I saw Richard Lewis. Yeah. I imagine you know him over yeah. the years. As I got out of the hotel, I did Young Hollywood, and I saw him walking in. I just today? rolled down my, yeah, just today. And I rolled down my window, and I said, hey, Richard, I'm a big fan. And uh, I didn't, I don't think he knew who I was. Right. And I, and I did say, I'm, I'm, uh, my name is Mick Foley. I'm yeah. a wrestler. I do a, a one-man show. So I, I really appreciate and respect uh, everything you've done. And he got this big smile. He says, thanks, man. You made me feel great. Yeah. And it was like, and I, I left. It was like a 20-second interaction. And I drove down the road and like, I felt good. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, I don't know if he ever knows. Like, that was kind of a you cool thing. You made him feel thing. good for a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> but when you, how long is the show when you do it? I do about an hour, and then we go to the Q&A, and then I try to bring it home with a final story. And then my gimmick, <laughs> you know, in wrestling speak, is I try to drop just one F-bomb a night and try to find a cool way to do it. So that if I do my... You're looking like cynically. Like, no, I can't no stop saying fuck. <laughs> like if I, it'd be amazing if I could go... If I could do one a night, that'd be a miracle. But you know what I was doing? And I think a lot of guys do this. And I... And I you know, some guys are like, you know, magical with the word, you know, and, and, and I don't put anyone who does it really well down, but I think for guys who are starting out, it's a crutch. 
Mm. It's almost like the big move in wrestling, like the steel chair to the head. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you know, that does create a lot of drama and realism, but you're using it as a crutch because you know people go, ooh. I don't even think about it. I think I'm lazy. Like, I, I, it's just part of the way I talk. And I don't know that people don't talk like that until I say it in a situation, like an office situation or like with regular people. I just throw fucks all over the place. And they're like, what is going on? And I'm like, I don't know. Doesn't everyone talk like this? I don't even think about it. And most of the guys in the wrestling business do sprinkle their you know, sentences liberally. But when, when, as a performing, when you perform stand-up as McFoley, I mean, what, what parts of the performing that you learned as a wrestler do you engage? Uh, well, you know, the, the comfort with the microphone. Sure. And I guess, you know, some of the but timing. Do you, are you distanced from yourself, though? Do you think you're doing, a, is, is the character of McFoley on stage doing McFoley something you have distance from? No, no. I mean, it's kind of cool. I mean, I I, I try to, uh, you know, invite everybody in. I know it's a kind of cliche. You leave a piece of yourself on the stage. Well, no, you're a pretty open-hearted yeah, guy. Yeah. I mean, but like when you did wrestling characters, I mean, you were very aware that, you know, this guy lived in this other world. But over time, people felt like they knew me. They did, because you've been around a in while. In a strange way. And I and there was a pivotal, like, uh, series. It's supposed to be one interview. turned into a series of interviews. And in 1997, uh, and this is at a time when you'd still go to like the local weather station and do the weather news station, do the weather in character. Sure, you know it was a, As a, it promo. Was a different day. And yeah. if, if wrestlers were on like the Tonight Show, they were on in character. If right. I was on this show, it would seem ludicrous now to have For a wrestler an hour? come in. It would seem. Did you compl- do an hour? Oh, yeah. When I would do a, re- you know, the the infancy of the wrestling, you know, uh, you know, uh, there weren't podcasts then, but if you did right. a, we- you know, website, yeah, you'd be in character at all times. It was like expected of. But you. for a one on one, for an hour, maybe. Come on, you yeah, can you could do mankind Listen, for an hour. I did Cactus Jack for six months in Texas with my girlfriend. I had no way of letting her know <laughs> that the guy she met was a character. <laughs> Really? I did, and I didn't know how to break it to her because she was attracted to that character. You were having sex as Cactus Jack? I was. (laughs) Date I was. And you know what? And here's the the funny thing. She started catching on because I am, like, you know, I'm 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 a nice guy. Yeah. And it wasn't that I wouldn't be mean to her. I was just, you know, a little out there as Cactus Jack. Yeah. And then I got a a phone call. I remember her specifically saying to me, like, Jack. She called me Jack. Didn't know my name. Oh, my God. You just let it go on. She said, I know. And I said- Know what? She says, I know. I said, What do you think you know? It's, I and she wouldn't say what she knew. Yeah. And a few days later, maybe a week, you know, a lot of time has passed. I got a phone call and she said, I need to talk to you. I said, Can you tell me over the phone? She said, No, I need to talk to you in person. So in the drive over, I think I was twenty four. What else could it be? You know? Right. What else could it be? And she I, found you out. No, she. Oh, I, you thought she was pregnant or something? Yeah. Oh. And she needed to borrow three hundred dollars. Right. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Not that I made a lot of money. It was about how all I made in a week. But I said, I can lend you money. And later that night when it came that time, I said, I can't, I can't do it. And she said, why not? And I said, uh, on my way over here, I, I promised God that if you weren't pregnant, I wouldn't have sex with you for a month. And she looked at me. She goes, you're kidding me. And I said, no, I'm not kidding. I was in character, you know. And she said, Jack. God doesn't make deals. I said, well, he made one with me. <laughs> and she said, you know, I thought this crazy thing was just an act, but you really are out of your mind. Yeah, like it was that that wow. bond I had, the promise I made, you know. It's complicated. Yeah. So she wasn't pregnant. She was not. Mm-hmm. I she just needed she, money? She needed a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. And Jack would fuck her. <laughs> no, not for a month. 
think I caved in after three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that was the world I was living in at that time. So what is your relationship with wrestling now? I know you, it sounds like you'd go back in and out. and Yeah, you know, I was. Uh, I got a call um, as I was heading for the premiere in L.A. asking me if I could be on Raw. That's the big Monday night show. And I was like, man, I you know I had uh, uh, you know I had your show lined up on Tuesday, and so at one point I actually was going to go from Los Angeles, and I had already gone from New York to Los Angeles on the red eye. Then I was yeah. catching red eye from from Los Angeles to Kansas City, and I was going to take another red eye or early morning flight mm. back, followed by a red eye back to New York just to do your podcast. And I said, I can't do it. Like I can't do it. And honestly. When I had the one day off on this on this tour, and I and I and I was told uh, Tommy Avalone, the director, I'd go out to L.A. on my one day off. He he was able to contact you and yeah. and get the show booked. Sure. And then I called him like Tommy, I don't. That's a lot of time. He's like, No, no, don't do this. You can't cancel on Marin twice. Like, you are correct. I cannot cancel Come on, on we're old friends. twice. Yeah, I couldn't do it, man. Then I would be the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> But uh, so, what did you do? What did you do for Raw? I mean, what was the capacity? Well, you know what? Uh, I'm you know kind of associated with this match known as Hell in a Cell. That took place in June of 1998. Oh yeah, it's yeah. an annual tradition now. And uh, they were given two of the younger well, you guys. Did the, you did the first one. I did the second one. Yeah. But you know, it was kind of like the defining one as far as a lot of wrestling fans are concerned. And so they were given uh, two of the younger guys, guys seasoned veterans, but young as far as the WWE. Right. You know, in that company are concerned, and they were getting their shot their first real singles main event. And yeah. Mr. McMahon, who I used to refer to as Vince, thought that uh, I might be able to add something to it. And so I got that call and uh, brought in under a veil of secrecy. Like, no one even... I didn't even tell my kids. Because usually I say, hey, make sure to watch Raw. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just wanted to see, like, if I could still, like, you know, if there was, like, the, the element of surprise was something special. And it turned out it was a good call because... My older kids were watching, and they were like celebrating. It was a good appearance, you know. I you you surprised your kids. Surprised on my kids. And one of the the one of the uh, um, difficulties I had was explaining to WWE that I was wearing Santa Claus themed attire for an entire year, and would therefore have to wear something Santa Claus esque even on Raw. And at that point, they were like, they just you know, I think we just we we want to get along. So mm-hmm. I. I I wore the the Cactus Jacks, you know, classic red and black flannel vest, and then I had a very nice uh, uh, Santa Claus <laughs> button down <laughs> underneath it, and we ended up using it as part of the, the you know the 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 promo as for we the call movie. It. Yeah, no, yeah. It, well, we didn't. I did, I know I'm not out there to talk about the movie. Like right. it's time to do business on the show. I don't want to distract from that. But uh, the guy um, Seth Rollins did make an allusion to it, and then I was able to say, "Do you know why I you know wear this shirt?" So I cling to the last vestiges of my innocence, the ones that weren't torn away by this demonic structure. And so I was able to kind of get a little... Th- I mean, people knew, and all of a sudden millions of people know, that this is the 300th day in a row that he's wearing Santa Claus attire. So, you made a commitment to your fans? Oh, man, yeah. Well, I made a commitment... I actually made a commitment to Morgan Spurlock when we yeah. met him in uh, early April. You know when uh, Tommy, why him? Well, Tommy Avalone had always wanted this to be a Morgan Spurlock project. Yeah, and uh, and uh, so we were having a chance to screen the movie. You know, not it's in its infancy, but at about the halfway point. No music. You know, it needed a lot of work, and we screened it for Morgan the day after WrestleMania. Caught a six a.m. to New Orleans. And it's just me, the director Tommy Avalone. And, Morgan Spurlock, like in his in his office, and we cue up this, 
you know, this this movie. And you know, for five minutes, he's kind of looking at it. And about five minute mark, he started tapping his heels. And I looked at Tommy, and I was like, he knows we've got a movie. And uh, and knowing that, you know, promoting a a documentary, you know, is is always an uphill struggle. It's really a, a labor of love. And uh, I, I just thought grassroots. I'll just yeah. start wearing Santa Claus stuff every day. So I, I did tell Morgan. I said. It was like day 97. I said, I'm pretty sure I've worn Santa Claus themed attire like every day. And I'm going to just, I'm going to, you know, have this alternate Twitter site. If people are listening and they real, that my main Twitter site is real at real Mick Foley. The alternate one is <laughs> at Foley is Santa. Yeah. And the only thing I do on that is document what I'm wearing every single day. So yeah. people go, there's only one tweet a day and it's what I'm wearing. And my daughter got a huge laugh because she knows, you know, my my regular Twitter site does pretty well. And then I show her every week we go to the other site and see that I've lost a hundred followers. Oh really? And she's like, Why? It's like because there's just a lot of people like who like me but aren't along for the ride. Yeah. Santa ride. But now, you know, now we're getting into the season, I think they're gonna It's a tough know, character yeah, for them to adjust yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. They accept it. But it's interesting to me that like, you know, when you got called up by uh, Mr. McMahon it, it almost seems that you lock into this weird, almost uh, uh, touching respect for the medium. You have a deep respect yes, for wrestling. I do. And, you know, whatever's gone on, I, I mean, did you have you burned bridges? Apparently not, you know. Yeah. I, I, you know, it seemed like I had at certain points. Mm -hmm. uh, but even when I left the, this, you know, I, you know, eight or nine months ago, I, I, I had the feeling I'd be back. You but know? that's the weird thing is that, like, even if you burn bridges, I mean, I think that McMahon knows on some level, you know, the way that real life and wrestling uh, actually sort of comes together is that if one of you guys is pissed off for as long as you want to be pissed off for, you know, the second that you want back in for whatever reason or he calls you up to do him a favor, then that just becomes a script. Your real life becomes a script. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I believe you might have just psychoanalyzed me. No, but my you know entire life. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I is do. it is that like you know from from where, like whatever tension you're building for whatever genuine reasons you may have? If if like you know Punk is like I guess turned his back on wrestling, but if you what whatever you know right. you're going through, your return is going to be glorious. It's all about forgiveness. <laughs> I, I swear. I think there's a part. Uh, in the wrestler's mind that needs the closure and mr man's like a father figure to a lot of us you know punk may be the one guy he may be the exception that proves the rule he may be the guy who actually leaves and never and he told me he's never coming back you know i'd said that once upon a time did you say what are you gonna do i did not no because i figure you know he, he's got plenty of things he's writing a thor comic you know and, uh -huh. uh, he's a newlywed like he'll find something else it's like I get almost, every, almost seriously, on a, any given night, almost everything that I got out of wrestling I get by performing in front of 150, 200 people. You know, and uh, it's like, wow, I, lo I love it up there. And I'm sure he'll find something he well, loves Well, yeah, I too. mean, it, it's just interesting. Is there part of you that thinks, like, good for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm pretty outspoken in saying, yeah. like, man, if, if, you're, if you're punk and you made your living because you were passionate about what you did. Yeah. And that passion dies, then it's almost like you owe it to yourself and your fans, you know, to, to leave. Like, yeah. I'm, going back to Springsteen, my brother and I would argue because he was the original Springsteen fan. Yeah. I climbed on a couple of years later, and then my brother kind of hopped off, and he said that Bruce had sold out, and he, you know, he was not playing with the band, and he didn't right. play the songs. I was like, John, if the guy's in his fifties and he's a multimillionaire, he's still writing songs about racing in the street. 
he's lying to himself and the public. He's like a different guy, you right. know. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's something we have in common with with musicians or or or, or comics yeah. is that they change as they get older. You, you can't be that angry young man anymore, or else it's just a. A facade. Yeah, and an angry old man's not that appealing. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I remember what... I had this talk. Dee Snyder was a neighbor of mine for many years, just moved out here to L.A. And I'll actually, this is the cool thing, one of the cool things about doing these uh, one-man shows is uh, like Peoria and Rosemont were booked around Dee Snyder's Christmas play. Mm-hmm. He wrote a, a, a Twisted Christmas Tale. Very good. I saw when he was like... Uh, um, when he was when it was in infancy, when they were playing it for buyers, you know, he and I support, uh, you know, what the the other one is doing, and he, he said like he was out there after, you know, I want to rock, and yeah. they, we're not going to take it, like floating in his pool, you know, at his beautiful house, going, okay, time to write my next angry teen anthem. He's like, I can't do it, too happy, <laughs> and so too happy, <laughs> yeah. When when I was you know late eighties, early nineties, a lot of my really good promo work you know microphone stuff was fueled by frustration but it's you know it's hard to be that guy when you're 49 and you've done everything you've wanted to do so you got what were you frustrated about well you know i didn't have the look that uh ww was you know that was in vogue and to this this is something i found something i i i've actually started a story started including in my show was getting a nice reaction is that i was only i knew all along mr mcmahon was not like he wasn't a big fan of my look and it was only like four months ago at a uh, wrestling fans convention in Galveston, Texas. Uh, keep in mind that the Mankind character had about you know two-thirds of his face obscured by yeah. a hideous leather mask. And Bruce Pritchard was at the wrestling convention. He confirmed for me that it was finally a meeting in late 1995. Mr. McMahon slammed his fist down the table. He said, all right, damn it. I'll bring him in, but I'm covering up his face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I'd been offered that at the time, you yeah. know, when I met with him in 95, I've been, I, no, like he had another way of explaining why this was a, a great look for me, but it was really just one man's quest to cover up another man's face. So that wasn't your idea? No, I was really comfortable being who I had been, which was Cactus Jack yeah. and traveling the country and the world. Like it worked everywhere I went. I didn't see the need yeah. for a change, but as a lot of wrestling fans will know, uh, you know, as I progressed, Mr. McMahon, to his credit, you know, came to understand, like, I had a more interesting life, he, pretty interesting life yeah. story. He got that. And he also got that, you know, in addition to being Cactus Jack, I had this, like, kind of, like, fantasy, you know, role that I created for myself when I was 17 as Dude Love. You know, and he was, like, cool. He was all the things that I wasn't in real life. And he decided to make that guy come to life on the screen. So, mm-hmm. you know... With hindsight being 2020, you know, I'm really fortunate that I came into the company in 1996 as a different character. Yeah. Because I got to be Mankind, I got to be Cactus Jack, I got to be Dude Love, and over time just kind of metamorphosized into, you know, Mick Foley, where the fans, you know, will, with a few exceptions, always refer to me as Mick Foley and not Mankind. That's, I guess that is an amazing testament to you as a person, that, that they're willing to do that. As, as like, because you were so many characters and they grew, you know, emotionally connected to all these different manifestations. Yeah, yeah. But when, when, when it all comes to pass, you were the guy that did that. And they're not, they're not running up to you going like, dude, love or yeah, Cactus yeah, Jack. Yeah. It's like, Mick, what's up? Exactly. Thank you for your work. 
Yes, they do. Right. And that's why I know Richard, that's essentially what I did to Richard Lewis. Right. And my kids, my, my, my kids will be with me and someone will be approach me in the airport and say, I just want to thank you for everything you've done. And, and, and then they'll walk away and my son will go, you like when they do that, right? And I go, <laughs> yeah, I do. Like, that's sort of like a day maker. Do you, know? you ever go, uh, which one? Which one do you, <laughs> what, 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 what part are you talking about? Occasionally. Yeah, uh, let's make it specific. Yeah, occasionally. Uh, because I was known for that, like I said, for that one match, the cell match. And uh, for a Is while, that the one where you hurt yourself? Yeah, you that yeah. was that was one where I, I yeah I was pretty badly hurt. And he fell through the cage. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a tough one, because we were in a situation where you know it's we're the show business sport, you know the 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 fake sport, but we were also at that time in 1998 the only sport that continued when one of the participants was no longer conscious. Yeah, now that's changed. You yeah. know, with what we've learned about. <laughs> Head injuries. If that were to ever happen again, that match would be called right away. And yeah. Matches have been, you know, called due to injuries, uh, and that's like the right move and the correct move. But if they'd called that match when I was unconscious, like no one would have been talking about it for a month because it was really a struggle mm. to see how, like, how are they going to, how are they going to finish this? This guy is out. <laughs> so when people would come up to me like that was the greatest match ever, I'd be like, that's like saying the Titanic was the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Cruise. You know, Do you ever, ever say like I missed most of it? <laughs> oh yeah, that wasn't great for me. It wasn't great for my wife. My kids are crying. Yeah, I remember calling home. I'd forgotten. How old are your kids now? About twenty-two, twenty, uh, thirteen, and eleven. What are the older ones like doing? You know, my son graduated college. He's still trying to find the right job. My daughter's kind of become like a like a like a personality, like on Twitter. You know, t- oh, yeah? at Noel Foley, she's hosting a, a a show for Ringside Collectibles. Very effervescent, and the biggest. This is like the you know the nice nicest things on the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. List is when I took uh, three of my kids to SummerSlam in Los Angeles. Uh, we went to Disneyland after mm-hmm. after the show for for three or four days, and we flew my daughter's best friend out, you know, to be there. And nineteen years old, like how much time are most nineteen year olds going to want to spend with their dad and two younger brothers? Yeah, like, none, right? Yeah. And we noticed that for three days, it was like you know, she was they would go out for a few hours and come back, and I was like, no, you can leave for as long as you want. And she's like, Dad. I- I really like hanging out with you. Like, you know, 19. I remember being in the rain offices in D.C. and I had my, my daughter with me. And they said, oh, wow, you know, you know, she was 20 at that time. Oh, I can only imagine, you know, the headaches that she yeah. caused you. I said, no, we, we've never had a crossword. And they laughed. I went, no, we've never had a crossword. And then she came in and she verified. No, she and I have never had a crossword. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah, yeah. And the wife's still on board? Oh, yeah, yeah. She's good. still well, that's there. Good. She's still there. <laughs> She allows me this Santa thing, you know. It's like there's worse things that a 49 year old guy could be doing. Yeah, you that. could be unconscious in a fucking cell match. I think I need to show you. That's why I was digging for the phone. As you talk, yeah. I, will, I will bring up the image. It's a stunning, a stunning. Well, I'm just, I, you know, I, it's great to see you. I, I mean, despite whatever uh, I may not know about <laughs> wrestling, we always seem to have a fairly uh, rich conversation. Oh, we do. I think because when I met you, it was on the Air America show, yeah, yeah. and at that time, I knew quite, you know, I knew quite a bit and didn't we do a bit we did a lot of bits we, yeah. didn't we do that one where uh where we had brendan play the conservative <laughs> right and he won this he was gonna fight wrestle me or something and then we brought you in and we did that whole script on the air and then we, we cut the mics for years no people thought it was real uh, really get, yeah we would get this mail sort of like hey look you know they have a right to talk to i don't agree with them but i think what you did to that guy that's right <laughs> And I remember, like, just how talented the writers were on that oh, show. Yeah, it was a blast, you know, dude. when I came in and co-hosted for a week with you, you know, I was like, 
you know, 5 a.m. and yeah. here's the production meeting. These yeah. guys are just great. This is a moment. Talk about great moments. Um, I'm on stage with my friends. Uh, Nora Jones has a project called Puss in Boots. Mm-hmm. She sings with uh, Catherine Popper and Sasha Dobson. Great, yeah. great music. And I was their Santa for their Christmas show. Yeah. And uh, they go to their final number and Nora Jones is singing Silent Night. And just in the back of my head, there's this voice going, if you don't walk up there and start singing with her as Santa, you will never forgive yourself. So here's the proof of that encounter. Oh, my God. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> you look so Santa-y. Like I embody the spirit there. So it's it, getting into character. You define the parameters of that character, <laughs> yeah. and, and you just become it, and you feel that. Sometimes, yeah, when it's really good. And yeah. you know when you're on stage and yeah. you're feeling it. Yeah. And there are other nights... As, Friday night late show sure. and you're just so you're working get through yeah <laughs> trying to get through it <laughs> trying to get yeah. through it so so it's like anything else some nights are, are better some experiences are better than others but it's when it's really good it feels this feels like a Tori Amos hug. Oh well I, I congratulate you on this new less risky role this new less risky character I appreciate it, man. It's this great is, seeing uh, you, man. Uh, thank you very much. And this is a big, uh, you know, it's big credibility boost to be on oh, here. Oh, so you're I, great. You're a good guy. I, I love talking to you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, man. All right, that's it. That was it. I love the man. He's been there for us. Mick goes back with uh, with me and Brendan to their America days. We've done some... Uh, on Mike wrestling shenanigans. I think we might have played that for you guys once. Go to WTF Pod for all your WTF Pod needs. I'm now going to play an Attitude Stratocaster for you because I actually got a little feedback said we missed your uh, we missed your riffing. So I'm going to riff.